Good morning, Terra Nova Troy. This is Pastor Bill. I'm uh, normally downstairs on a Sunday like this. This is our fourth Sunday of the month, and our Terra kids and our Terra youth meet right down below in the rooms. We have our nursery. Maybe you noticed that as you walked in. A busy day here. Uh, actually, today is a, is a kind of a significant day for us. Do you realize this is, this is the end of the third month we've been meeting here at the Boys and Girls Club? And it I still gets me excited. It's still one of those uh, things where I come in here, I'm just, wow, we're really here. This has been a great fit for us. And I, I mention that because this is actually the last day we're going to be in here for a little while. All right, next Sunday is Independence Day, July the 4th. If you haven't heard already, I know Dennis is going to talk about this. We're going to be off. We're going to take a break. A lot of people traveling. Uh, big day next weekend for Pastor Tori and Anna. Uh, and then we're going to be outside for four Sundays in July and that first Sunday in August. Anyway, some fun stuff. We're going to be at Sage Park. Make sure, I think the biggest thing we want to remember is make sure you bring your chairs. Uh, there is shade, which is going to be a blessing, but it's going to be a fun summer. Uh, and then when we're back here in August, we have some good stuff planned. Uh, there's going to be just some changes a little bit to Terra Kids. I think some things are going to improve how we do that. Uh, some Neat stuff coming for Terra Youth. Uh, I think it's just really uh, uh, giving me encouragement. We've come through a challenging last year or so, and uh, we're getting ready to turn the corner. And I'm just looking forward to that. There's another event we're going to be talking about uh, in August, special event here on a, on a Saturday and a Sunday. Just some neat stuff here. So we'll, we'll kind of take July to, to reset and then kind of build up in August for the fall. So anyway, good, exciting stuff. All right, so we're back in Matthew's Gospel today. This is actually uh, the last time we're going to be preaching in Matthew for a bit. We'll pick this back up uh, toward the end of the summer. But I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 21, a really important passage as we're looking at the, uh, the Lord's his journey to the cross. All right, as Pastor Tory uh, talked about last week, the Lord has entered now into Jerusalem. This is the final week. Really important uh, theological teachings for us as we try to understand what, who Jesus is, what he came to do, what that means for us. So I, before I jump into today's passage, I want to ask a question. How do we interpret the Bible? How do we interpret the Bible? What do I mean by interpret? Nothing really too technical. It's really about how do we make sense of what we read? How do we make sense of what we read to get a basic understanding of a particular passage of Scripture, what it means, how we can live it out, because uh, I think that's really the reason we read the Bible. It should be, right? Trying to figure out what does is, what is this particular passage that I'm reading here today mean? What's it mean? How can I apply it to my life? What are the actual lessons here? Um, I hope you're asking questions like that. I hope you're asking questions like that. Whether you're coming here on a Sunday and you're listening to one of us up here, or you're gathering with your tribes, your small, what we, our small groups, we call them tribes, uh, or you're just opening up your Bible together with your family, your spouse, uh, you're, you're uh, just on your own. Um, we, uh, we need to be asking these questions. We need to be asking these questions because we, we know that we need God's word in our lives. We need to be changed from the inside out as the, the gospel light shines in those dark places in our heart to reveal the areas that God wants us to address, those areas that he's going to... Uh, begin to heal and change us. So we, I asked that question this morning. How do we understand 
what we're reading. And we're not going to have a discussion today on, on Bible interpretation. That's a valuable discussion. We're going to save that for another time. Um, but I think we, we, I ought to bring this up because as we open up Matthew 21, I want us to think about how we make sense of what we read. How do we make sense? Uh, I just want to offer just a little bit of guidance, just some basic advice about this. First, whenever we're looking at a, a, a book of the Bible or a section of the scriptures like today, we need to think of in terms of how it was written, how, what, what happened in that particular situation, all right? When was it written? To whom was it written? So kind of that, that how, when, and whom, to whom. Because God used human authors writing a particular style of literature, a particular moment in history, to a particular audience for a particular reason. All right, I'm saying that because when we open up a passage like this in Matthew 21, we got to try to go back to what was happening that day. What do we need to be looking for and listening for? All right, you don't need to maybe know all this inside and out as you read, but remembering some of these guidelines helps us to understand the passage better, keeps us from reading our life into a passage and, and then missing what God intended for us. All right, we've got to figure out what was the writer of that passage trying to communicate to us. One of my professors back in uh, seminar used to say, uh, the scripture, it can't mean now what it didn't mean then. It can't mean now what it didn't mean then, so we've got to figure out how to understand it in light of what, of how this story today was understood originally. How did the original hearers understand it in light of what was going on that day? So let's just be asking these, these basic questions today. All right, so where am I going with this? Um, we're going back to Matthew, Matthew 21, and we're going to look at a story that's familiar. It's familiar, familiar to most of us, right? Um, many of us have read this story. We know how it goes. And I think it's easy for us to look at it again and not see how really important it is. Or we can read into it and, and, and what we think it might mean and miss what God has for us. So let's just open up our Bibles, if you haven't yet, to Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. We're going to look at the second half of this triumphal entry of the Lord. The next day, he's entered in Jerusalem, verse 12. And now he's going to head up to the temple. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the table of the money changers, the tables of the money changers, and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And in verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, the son of David, and they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went to the city, uh, he, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. All right, short passage in the sense of what we just read, but a lot in there. If you'll join me, I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer and ask the Lord to open our eyes and our ears to what he has for us today. Thank you, Father, 
for bringing us together as your people. We are grateful to be able to gather like this on a Sunday. We're, we're grateful for uh, those of us who've already blessed us and encouraged us, those, of us that are, those folks that are serving this morning. It is, it is good to be together. Lord, we, we thank you that we can open up your word together. Lord, we want to hear from you today. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see a passage that may, might be familiar, that might be easy to read through and miss what you have for us. Help us to hear, Lord, help us to see what it is you have. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. All right. Well, again, just not, not a long passage. We just read it, but a lot in there, and we're going to take a look at that. All right, so today should be an outline up there. Yes, there we go. All right, really simple. What, the first, first piece we're going to look at, what was the Lord teaching? Are we talking about how to make sense of, of, of a passage? We're going to look at that today. What was the Lord teaching through this confrontation at the temple? I, I got to think that a lot of us have read through, us, through, read through the this, this story at different times, and we really haven't thought much about what was going on there, other than Jesus made quite a ruckus. All right, we're going to, we're going to look at that. What does the story mean? And then the second piece is pretty simple, too. What do the lessons from the story, or how do the lessons from the story guide our faith? How do they guide our faith? What does it mean for us now? How can we apply it? All right, so the place to start in the stories is, is let's, let's kind of take ourselves back there and think about how the folks that witnessed what Jesus did that day would have responded to him. All right, because when we read the story, I, I got to think most of us, we didn't really have any emotions probably that were uh, stirred up as we read that. But for those who witnessed what happened in those brief couple verses there, they had to be shocked. In fact, they had to be scandalized. Who is this guy? He comes into town on this donkey, has this big parade, the people are cheering, laying down their coats, the palm leaves, and the next day he goes to the temple, that special place for the people of Israel. And just causes a bunch of trouble. Turns over tables, flips over people's coin boxes, lets their birds go. All right, just drives them out of the temple and we'll take a look at just all that took place that day. What was Jesus doing? What does it mean? Important questions we need to ask. So we're going to walk through the story here. All right, what's going on? What was the Lord teaching through his confrontation at the temple? All right, as I said, this is really the second part of Jesus' triumphal entry. He's making a statement here like he did the, the day previous on that Palm Sunday. Um, he, he, as Pastor Tory mentioned last week, he rode into town on the donkey. It was uh, uh, really a, a fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9. The crowds greeted him like a king. We, we know that story. And certainly there was a buzz in the city. Just imagine that. Jesus, who's this guy? He's the promised one. Can he really be? Yes, he's the one. Haven't you heard him? Haven't you seen what he's done? People had to be talking about this. So it's not hard to be, imagine that crowds began to gather, that they had followed Jesus wherever he was that evening to, or, or that morning, and they followed him right up to the temple. I, I imagine they were wanting to see what he would do or what he would say. Maybe there was some great proclamation coming. Certainly, people had their expectations of what Jesus might do for God's people who had been struggling, 
struggling for centuries, now struggling under Roman rule. As I said, what, must, what happened must have shocked everyone. In verse 12, Jesus entered the temple. He drove all, out all who were buying and selling there, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling do- doves. I don't know about you, but I, I, I remember hearing this story in Sunday school. It's a pretty common story in a sense. But I don't think anybody's expecting Jesus to do that. In their minds, Jesus had come, come there to, to lead God's people back to glory. This was the beginning of something good. Yet Jesus just turned everything upside down. So as, as they're trying to figure out what's going on here, there's just chaos, uh, people yelling and pushing and shoving, and people are grabbing money off the ground, and people are trying to grab their animals that they've been released. Jesus stands up and makes quite an interesting statement. My house will be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. What's that all about? that all about? Well, the, Jesus had entered an area that was known as the court of the Gentiles. All right? It was an outer courtyard uh, considered to be like a preparation area for temple worship. It was not officially the temple, all right, just the outer area, all right, but there were some regulations about that. Now, God-fearing Gentiles could enter that area. That's as far as they could go. All right? And there was, there was uh, a lot of different uh, activities going on there. All right, uh, there was this, this area over time had become a marketplace, a marketplace that was for selling animals for the sacrifice, money changing. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, it, it, frankly, it served legitimate purposes. Let's just think about that for a bit. Throughout the centuries, countless Jewish families had migrated all over the world, the Greek and Roman world, that is. Uh, in any given year, many would travel back to participate in the festivals and the sacrifices in the temple as an expression of worship to the Lord God, to be faithful to God. Most of these pilgrims traveled long distances, right? Which made bringing their, their own animals really impractical. Also, most people, this is in the time of the Roman era there, first century, most people that would have been traveling would have been people that had a little more money. They weren't, probably weren't that involved in agriculture anymore. A lot of these people were people that had trades, business people. Instead, they brought money to purchase what they needed, and thus this market kind of arose in the temple courts to meet this need. I did a little bit of research. There's not a real clear idea of when it happened. It just kind of grew as the needs arose. So people would come, they'd, need to bring, they'd bring their money, they'd buy their animal for sacrifice, they'd, they'd follow the Levitical law, they'd want to do what, they, what, what the, the Word of God had ordained for them as far as their worship. Along with the various sacrifices, the Old Testament expected Jewish families to contribute financially to the temple system. We did discuss the temple tax a couple months ago. Uh, these people would arrive with, with Gentile money, unclean money. They'd have their, you know, maybe Jewish... Uh, folks from Macedonia area would come with their Greek drachmas and they couldn't put that Gentile money in the temple coffers. It was unclean. So they had to have the shekels, right? So they, they had to uh, exchange that money. Somebody was there to, to give them an exchange and, and, uh, so they could, they could make their contribution. 
So we, as we think about this, um, we ask the question, so why did Jesus overturn these temples, or overturn these tables and, and drive these people out of there? I think the, the first thought we have, and maybe what we've, we've kind of understood it in the past, is it was just the corruption. There was a lot of shady buyers and seller, uh, uh, sellers there that were exploiting people. And, and I think that's, that's probably true. I mean, we know human nature, right? That doesn't take, doesn't take much for, for people to kind of take advantage of those in a, in a position like that. But again, we've got to go back to the text. What is the reason that Jesus drive, drives these people out of that courtyard? The only explanation that Matthew shares for what the Lord did was when, the, when our Savior quoted the prophets. It is written, My house shall be known as a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Jesus is actually quoting two different prophets, the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. And I think that gives us a hint that what Jesus was doing was much bigger than just addressing the corruption of those guys that were trying to maybe squeeze a little more out of the, uh, the, the pilgrims that were coming for worship. Yes, he was addressing corruption, but not just the, that small-scale overcharging of travelers. This was an issue, but it wasn't the issue. The corruption that Jesus was addressing that day went beyond that. It was corruption of worship. It was the corruption of worship that truly brought the Lord anguish and caused him to go to the temple that day and act so decisively. Jesus had been speaking to this spiritual cancer in the hearts of God's people in less direct ways throughout his ministry. Like when he challenged the assumptions of the Pharisees, right? Where they were so concerned about keeping their traditions. But they hadn't given much thought to the condition of their hearts. This really wasn't anything new for the Lord. By driving out the sellers and the money changes here in this last week of his ministry, Jesus is making a statement, not just of those guys who were being a little shady and corrupt. He's making a statement about the whole sacrificial system at the temple. And again, for those of us 2,000 years removed, it may not seem that big of a deal, but for a first century follower of God, Jewish person who either lived there or had come there to Jerusalem, that was huge. The temple was the center of everything. It was that one place on earth where you could go to access God's grace. To meet the Lord. Part of that system. Like in generations past, the people of his day had lost sight of the primary reason why the temple was built. To be a house of prayer. The one place on earth where God's people could meet the Lord to renew their covenant relationship with, with him, and to offer up prayers of praise and worship. The temple should have been a place where their attention was singularly focused on their Redeemer God, who had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt and established them as his people. They should have come there with humble hearts and quiet souls, 
ready to offer up this, this, that sacrificial animal whose, whose blood would be spilled, whose life would be taken from it for a specific purpose. To remind God's people that their sin costs. An animal would be offered up in their place to remind them that God was merciful and would forgive their sins. And what we know as people who see the, the life and ministry of Christ and can look at like the, the epistle of, of, to the Hebrews that Jesus was to be that final offering. That the sacrificial system for, for centuries had pointed to Jesus. But instead, too many people would show up there, buy their animal for sacrifice, hand it over to the priest, maybe without thinking too much about what it meant, and go on with their business. Their offering had become mainly about money, a transaction. Something they needed to pay without little thought of what took place there. Along with that, the temple had become as busy and as loud as any other place in Jerusalem. I was reading about that this week. Just a lot of commotion there in a place that should have been a, an area to prepare your hearts for worship. For most people, I wonder if the, the trips to the temple had become another task on their busy schedules. Instead of an act of worship, going to the temple had become like going to the market, shopping and bargaining, trying to find the best deal on your lamb or goat or pigeon, dove, perform their religious duty before going back to the rest of their busy life. And I tell you what, as I thought about that this week, it felt a little bit familiar. The corruption that Jesus was addressing was more subtle and more widespread than just those guys that were ripping off the traveling pilgrims. Trying to make a little extra money. God's people had lost sight of what really mattered. Worship of God was no longer at the center of their lives. I think that's what Jesus is addressing that day. Well, Jesus, he could have driven out those vendors with the word about how he was greater than the temple and how he had authority. All right, we know he had said things like that back in chapter 17. He declared himself greater than the temple. That, that made the powers that be very upset. But instead, Jesus quoted the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah and Jeremiah. In the first half of that statement, where Jesus quotes Isaiah, he's, he's, using a, uh, uh, he's, he's, he's utilizing that, that, that quotation of Isaiah, chapter 56, um, where, where the prophet is speaking to the, uh, the time when God's people would be renewed inside, that time when the Savior would return, so that we would no longer be stuck in our, our, our uh, old ways, but we would have that renewal inside, and we could truly worship him. That's how he addresses this. My house shall be known as a house of prayer. There's a coming a time when there will when there'll be real worship here, real worship by God's people. And people must have been thinking, what is he doing? Who does he think he is? Who gives him authority to do this? Jesus doesn't respond to any of that. Instead, he quotes Isaiah. 
The temple was meant to be the place where God's people could come and worship God. In the midst of all the busyness of life, the turmoil, the chaos, all the disappointments that we face each day, the temple, uh, people could come to the temple to connect with the Lord, to pray, to worship, and experience God's grace. But they allowed the activity of the temple to distract them from where their focus could have been, should have been. Instead of being a house of prayer, these distractions were robbing God's people of the right focus. And they were robbing the Lord God of the glory that was due him. That second half, he quotes Jeremiah chapter 7. You have made this a den of robbers. It's hard to know exactly what had been going on there. But I imagine the marketplace with all the buying and selling had slowly caused people to think that their money was just their access to God. Go to the temple, buy their sacrifice, pay their tax, and and move on. Jesus is addressing the greater corruption that was infecting God's people. God's people were missing the mercy and grace of God that was available to them when they would come to the temple and humbly worship the Lord. All right. Pretty significant confrontations there. We could probably just focus on that and really think about what that means for us. But I think there's some other pieces of the story that are very important. What happens next? So Jesus makes this statement in verse 13. And then in verse 14, there's, a, there's a, another detail there that's easy to miss. The blind and lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. What's that about? This seems like an insignificant detail, right? We've gotten used to Jesus healing people. You know, whether you grew up in church and you knew, know these stories as a kid, or even if, as we've been going through, through Matthew here, our loving Savior is healing somebody. Not a big deal, right? Um, that he would take a break from this big confrontation to help someone who's hurting. Let's pause and think about that. The Lord just drove out a group of sellers and money changers who had permission by the priestly authorities to run their businesses in the temple courtyard. But then he welcomes a group of disabled people that wandered into the courtyard to get access to God. And it might not sound like anything significant to us, but think about that. Historically, people with disease and physical ailments, especially visible disabilities, they were not allowed in the temple courts. And this has some roots in Levitical law. If you were sick or infectious, you were not allowed to bring your gifts or your sacrifices in person. That makes sense, right? Uh, This was partly because of how serious God's people were to take the holiness of God and the place where God's presence was known. All right? So I think as over time, this led to the exclusion of disabled people completely. Regardless of whether they were sick or contagious. If you were blind or you had a limp, there was something wrong with you, couldn't go in there. We don't want to see you in there. You don't belong there.
These folks, their access to God was limited. So no fault of their own. Now think of that detail in terms of, of these folks who press forward in the temple court, the courtyard, as Jesus drives out the buyers and the sellers. It was the blind and the lame. The blind and the lame. The throwaway people. Men and women who are easy to miss. People that you would try not to look at as you walked by them on your way to the temple and they were begging because if you were blind and lame in the first century, that's about all you had. Or maybe if your heart was in the right place, you would give them a coin or two. But they would not be the people you would think much about when you went to the temple to worship. They weren't supposed to be there. But in that moment, when respectable people who would have been scandalized about what Jesus just did, they see blind and lame people coming into the temple for healing. And what did Jesus do? He welcomes them. Not an insignificant detail. Are you picking up on that? This is a picture of the gospel. Jesus just expelled the authorized people who who thought they were worthy to be there. And he welcomed the excluded. The people who in their mind thought, I deserve to be here, I have a job to do. And in the midst of doing that job, missed the point why they were there. Jesus welcomes those who were excluded. He heals them. Again, I don't think this detail is coincidental. The Lord God ordained this part of the story in his providence so that Jesus could show the crowds the kind of people that God is calling. The humble and the needy. Those who are aware of their condition and go to the Lord by faith to be redeemed and restored. There was a group of people that day who were offended by Jesus and had no time for him and wouldn't listen. And there were others that knew who they were, knew their need and came to him. Well, the next part of the story is also important, but it's just as easily missed. Apparently, there was a group of children, probably what we would think is maybe preteens or teens, not really sure, in the ancient culture when the children was just a broad term for anybody that wasn't an adult. So we're not really sure how old they were, but they were out and about doing what kids do, and they witnessed this. And these, these kids began to shout, Hosanna, son of David! And maybe they were repeating what had been said the day before when Jesus rode into town on that, that donkey like a king. They were, but I think they were singing it because what they had just seen, what Jesus had just done, the healing of the, the blind and the lame, it had to be an amazing sight. Maybe they didn't quite understand all that was happening, but they responded by praising the Lord and recognizing that God was at work. And you know what? That was a lot more and what the religious leaders and teachers, people that should have known, were able to recognize. So it says here, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the ones who were in charge, uh, had the power to determine who could access God, who, they, who could be excluded. 
They said to Jesus, do you know what they're saying? Do you know what they're saying? Like, Jesus, you, 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 you need to deal with this. You know, maybe these guys had ignored the singing before that was such a large group as people were, were shouting Hosanna and waving palm branches the day before, but, but now Jesus had gone too far. In their minds, he had no authority to do this, to expel those vendors and, and stand up there and make some prophetic proclamation. And he certainly shouldn't have been bringing these unclean people into the presence of the temple. So religious leaders demanded that Jesus address the young people. Do you hear what they're saying? Again, we miss stuff like this, but a statement like, Hosanna, son of David, was reserved for God's anointed servants. God's anointed servants, which Jesus clearly could not be, right? For all the blasphemous things he'd said in the past, and now for this politically incorrect stunt he just pulled. Priests were demanding he did something. But Jesus' response was simple. Yes. Yeah, I hear him. I hear him. But I'm not going to keep him quiet. For God has ordained them to sing these truths. Jesus responded to the, the Pharisees, or excuse me, to the, 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 uh, the priests and the teachers there that day by taking them back to the Bible. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? That God has ordained praise. He's quoting Psalm 8. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Wow. How can he say that? Jesus Jesus was welcoming the praise of these kids because he was worthy. He was worthy. Well, the Lord had said enough. That's all all he had to say. God had ordained them to say this. This was God's plan. And he left. He left. Jesus left the temple courts and he focused on the rest of the week. Wow. Wow. I don't think that took a ton of time. But he had said so much. What's this mean for, for, what did this mean for the people today? We, I, I started at the beginning talking about when we, when we try to make sense of a passage, especially one like this that just kind of is, is hard for us to initially understand. It's, there's so much cultural stuff in there that it's got to be unpacked. What does it mean? What did it mean for the people of that day? Well, you know, I imagine that the buying and the selling in the courtyard it likely resumed like a day, uh, within a f- just even a few hours later that day. For all those who had been shocked and scandalized by what Jesus did, what he said, the business of the temple went on like it had before. I guess, I suppose most people didn't know what to make of it. Others probably were struggling just to process all that Jesus had taught. In a matter of days, something more drastic than most could have imagined would take place. This great teacher would be arrested and pushed through a trial where he'd be falsely accused and unjustly convicted. The Lord would suffer shame on a Roman cross like the worst criminal. All the singing of praises to him earlier in the week would seem 
pointless as his life had been taken from him. But then Sunday came. As the Lord rose from the tomb on that morning, people began to understand what it all meant. What he was saying that day. He was the sacrifice. What he had, pro- what he had promised was true. So what are the lessons from the story? What does it mean? Maybe there's three things we can take away from the story as we try to figure out what the point of it is. First one, Jesus completed the temple. All right. He was the final sacrifice to secure our redemption, the second piece of that. And thirdly, in Christ, we can be true worshipers. All right. He completed the temple. He was the final sacrifice. And we can be true worshipers. I want to unpack that a little bit for us and think about how we can apply that to our lives. What, what, what are these lessons, or how do these lessons guide our faith? I got really two pieces of this. First one, take home with us as we, as we chew, through, chew, this, chew on the story, kind of work through it this week. The first one is that our faith is not about church activity and outward performance. God's people were never called to a faith of religious rituals and moral obligations. But historically, that was one of their biggest struggles. We know Jesus addressed this uh, over and over again in the Gospels, particularly among the religious leaders. They were busy people who were missing the point. So maybe it's not that surprising if we think about that, about ourselves and our own, our own hearts. Most of us recognize how sometimes we can follow along in the activities of church while our hearts aren't always in it. We can sing along without necessarily meaning what, meaning what it should. We can serve because we're on a schedule that week, but forget the reason why. Maybe because it's easy to fall back into those old patterns. Maybe because we're so busy. Instead of focusing on the Lord and celebrating what we have in Him, we can get busy and lose sight of what really matters. Our faith is not about church activity and outward performances. Jesus came to redeem us from that empty worship so we could serve with joy as people loved by God. We can draw near to the Lord and experience the fullness of of this relationship with him. Our worship should never be an obligation, something we have to check off. The writer of Hebrews wrote about this, I think, in chapter 10, verses 19 through 24. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it quickly. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, he's using that metaphor of the temple, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, speaking about Jesus here, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. 
don't need to perform in order to measure up. We don't need to follow rules to be accepted. We serve because he's accepted us. We don't need to sing praises to earn his favor. We worship the Lord because Jesus secured our favor before God. We don't pray so that we can somehow get God to care about our struggles. Because he cares so much, we can take our struggles to him. The Lord seeks true worshipers. My house shall be known as a house of prayer. Jesus kind of gave us a little bit of uh, uh, a preview of this in John chapter 4 when he met another outsider, the Samaritan woman, woman with a history, a past. They were having this little debate whether where was the right place to worship, the right system of worship? Is it in Samaria on that, the mountain there, Mount Gerizim, or is it in Jerusalem at the temple? And Jesus says, no, no, you're missing it. A time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Jesus was talking about what was ahead, what he would accomplish for us. We saw he would become that final sacrifice. Worship would no longer be connected to that physical location. Instead, God's people would be the place where the glory of God would dwell. We are that house of prayer. So God seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And we don't have time to dig down into that. There's a lot there in John chapter 4, but let me just say a little bit. For those of us who know the Lord, who responded to him with faith, our worship is to be our response of love and gratitude. That's what the Lord desires for us. Do you know the Lord? Have you responded to him with faith? Are you a true worshiper? The Father seeks true worshipers, those who worship him in spirit and in truth. If you know the Lord and you know that great love for him, then worship is what you do. I don't mean just singing like we're able to do here with the wonderful musicians and and vocalists we have. That, That worship, that focus on God throughout the week, throughout the day. Worship will flow out of us every day whether that's here on Sundays, meeting together in our tribes, as a family, individually. So we, we stop to, to give thanks to God, to open up his word, to reflect on what he has done for us. Jesus came to make us true worshipers. That's what this is about. We are to be a house of prayer people that respond to God's love with worship. Well, in a few moments, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper. What a fitting way for us to close as we focus our hearts on our Redeemer who, who gave his body, whose blood was shed on that Good Friday to be the final sacrifice 
so that we could gather like this and worship him. The band is going to come back up again to lead us. We have another opportunity to offer up praise and thanksgiving to the Lord together. And as we sing, remember that it's through faith in Christ that we can worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And that we can be that house of prayer. If you'll bow with me, I'm going to close this briefly in prayer. Thank you, Father, for sending us your Son. Thank you, Lord, that we can see in this passage just a bit of clarity about what it is you've called us to be, true worshipers. That is what you desire, Lord. More important than all the busyness we might have, even here on a Sunday morning, that we would come with spirits of, of worship, opening up your word, hearing from you, Lord. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.